0: Morning. A couple things before we begin. Um, We are in need of a uh, nursery coordinator. I think we've been making that announcement, and I realized that the former nursery coordinator set a pretty high bar. That was my wife, you know. And so I could see where everybody would be so intimidated to try to replace those shoes. But yeah, that is a service that we need uh, provided in our church, and that relates a little bit to the second uh, message. I, and Mike did already talk about it. That you know we're going to be going to one service, and one of the things um, that is going to kind of be reignited with that is our Sunday school. And be, you know then the nursery coordinator becomes even more critical as we have our Sunday school kind of moving into full swing. So uh, that second announcement. I will dedicate um, Sunday school Q&A time talking about that, the decision the elders made, why we made that decision. I know that some people have indicated that it's unclear to them. It's been unclear all along, kind of, the decisions we've made. And, uh, you know, we do our best to kind of explain our thinking. Session meetings are open to people who want to come and hear the dialogue, And as you probably know, we don't have one kind of monolithic position. I mean, there's all sorts of agreements and disagreements, and sometimes there's a vote and it's passed by one uh, vote, you know, it might be five to four or something along those lines. And so to try to explain accurately everybody's thinking, because you really want to do that, you want to go, here's the thinking, but you don't want to build straw men against people who maybe you don't agree with, and you don't want to have a strong man built against you. So it's very difficult to put together one statement that kind of encompasses all of that. Having said that, that's exactly what I will be doing. (laughs) And so I would really encourage you, if you have questions along those lines, to be either here at Q&A or go into the live stream and ask your questions. That would be very helpful to me rather than meeting with all of you individually, not that I wouldn't love that. But it might be good to hear the explanation, and then when we meet, then you can have the questions based upon the things you've already heard said. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. And if that doesn't make sense, then let's get into the Revelation. <laughs> we are in part six uh, this morning. We are uh, finishing up our uh, instruction on verses seven and eight of Chapter 1, so it's part 6, part 3, Behold, He is coming. Revelation 1, 7, and 8, hear now the word of God. Behold, He is coming with clouds, and every eye will see Him, even they who pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of Him. Even so, amen, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would help us to understand these phrases that we read in the Bible, the day of the Lord or the coming of the Lord, what it means, Father, to to mourn, Why, why certain Groups of people seem to be specified, and and what that means to us. And we do pray that as we examine the fine points of the revelation, we would never lose the big picture, and that is the victory of Christ over all evil, the victory of Christ over death itself. So help us, Father, to recognize as we look at the details, to understand what it is you're doing throughout the course of history and into eternity, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we were looking to take a tour through Circus Maximus in uh, Italy, my wife and I. And uh, we happened upon a lady who just out of the blue volunteered to help us appreciate what had happened or the history of that setting. And she wasn't a tour guide, and she didn't even work for the venue. you I mean she was just kind of standing there and she says, I'll show you guys around. And we looked at the workers, and they were like, We don't know who that is. So we were a little bit suspicious. Turns out she was an American. She was in Italy for a conference. And she was a professor. She had a PhD in world history. And she knew more about the Circus Maximus than anybody in the joint. So we start walking around, and it was. Just delightful. I mean, we actually went, even left there and went other places, and she's, we had a personal tour guide telling us all about the history of, of Italy. And in our discussion, we began to commiserate regarding the lack of appreciation people have for history. There are so many amazing things, historically, that we take for granted, and we have no idea where they came from, or why they're there. Like, what led to this? During our discussion, she, as is common today, repeatedly referred to the dates when things happened as either part of the common era or before the common era, right? You've heard this, CE and BCE. CE and BCE. Now even though those terms, they're not brand new, they weren't just made up, they've really gotten legs recently in different disciplines and different societies. These societies are these disciplines that want to promote a more secular understanding of, of history. So according to many people, the more historically used terms, which you know what they are, right? BC, before Christ, AD, Anno Domine, or the year of the Lord, those are less inclusive and just too religious. Well, after we had become very cozy and friendly, after we had developed enough history in our relationship, I thought I'd ask her a question. And I've, I've asked this question before on, on tours. Not that I want to be a troublemaker. Recognizing her penchant for remembering and valuing history, my question was something along these lines. What happened historically that separated the the two eras? You keep talking about the common era and the before the common era. What happened that changed the eras? It had to be really significant. Well, that led into another really exhilarating conversation, but she was pretty smart, and she got my point. You can call it whatever you want, but it seems that the entire history of the entire world utilizes the life of Christ to determine what year it is, except for the French for 12 years in the late 1700s. And um, they went to a a 10-day week because they didn't want Genesis in the seven days to kind of dominate the French. Well, I mention this in our final message on Revelation 1-7 because I get the impression, especially among Christians, that we just don't appreciate how significant of an event it was when the old covenant became the new covenant the history behind that, that you are moving from the Old Covenant, which was expressed, obviously, in Genesis through Malachi, into the New Covenant, which begins with Matthew and culminates with the Revelation. Now, let me just say this. It is universally held by virtually all theologians. In whatever eschatological or end times camp you happen to be in, that the revelation, and I've mentioned this before, is basically a protracted or a lengthy Olivet discourse. Now, the Olivet discourse is basically a message Jesus gave. He gave it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so, Jesus in three of those go- three of the four Gospels gives what they call the Olivet discourse. It's called that because it was given at the Mount of Olives. And it's in those discourses or those sermons that we we read things that we also read in the Revelation. Earthquakes and famines, the abomination of desolation, the, the moon turning to blood, the sun turning black, and on and on. Those things are in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're also in the Revelation. John, by the way, didn't write in his gospel about the Olivet Discourse. It's like he saved it for the Revelation. Now, all three of those sermons in Matthew, Mark, and Luke begin with Jesus undeniably teaching about the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. That's not even up for debate. The temple, the temple, that standing temple at the time was the greatest symbol that there was marking out the old covenant era. When, when you look at that temple, and everything associated with the temple, you know, I mean, going all the way back to Solomon's temple, you know, and you've got the showbread, you've got the menorah, you've got the Ark of the Covenant, and on and on. All of that really pointing to Christ, as we'll see in just a second. But that temple, and the looking at that temple, was an establishment of that old covenant era. And when that temple was destroyed by the Roman armies in AD 70, it annihilated any reasonably functional administration of the Old Covenant. The the artifacts, the the records, the temple itself, when that came to an end, it was was a, a cataclysmic end of that covenant. So a lot of the cataclysmic language we read of that a lot of people associate with the end of the world really needs to be associated with the end of the Old Covenant. In an effort to keep Jewish Christians from abandoning the faith and going back to those artifacts, going back to those things that prefigured or foreshadowed Christ, the author of Hebrews makes it quite clear. He writes in Hebrews 8.13 regarding the end of the Old Covenant. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete is growing old and ready to vanish away. So you, you could see that it happened not immediately, it happened over a period of years. It was obsolete and it was vanishing away, and by A.D. 70, it was gone. Now, significant portions of the New Testament, especially the Gospels, teach of this very thing. If we're reading our Bibles, especially if we're reading our Bibles with the end times in mind and not seeing this, we're missing that, which should really kind of explode right in our faces. Think about different parables that Jesus taught. So many of them convey the same message we see in the one I'll just tell you about. Maybe you're familiar with, just from the top of your head, the parable of the the vineyard. Right? You have a a vineyard, and the owner of the vineyard leaves his vineyard to tenants that I would argue would be Israel. And, And so he sends his servants to kind of oversee what's going on. And these tenants, what do they do to the servants? They beat them, they kill them, and so forth. So what does this master, this owner, do? He's like, truly, they won't do that to my son. So he sends his son, clearly a reference to Jesus. And then they're like, oh, well, if we get rid of him, we can take over entirely. They kill the son. And then we read that in their future lies judgment. And death for what they did to the Son. Now let me tell you, that's not talking about the end of the world. And that's not left for us to guess when we when we kind of make a statement about this parable of the vineyards or other parables that say essentially the same thing, you know, the marriage feast, right? That there were people who were invited and they didn't want to go. So go to the highways and byways and bring them. So we see this same message kind of over and over, and that is that there's something significant, and whoever's in charge of that significant ministerial thing, they are negligent in their duty. They're hostile, actually, to the truth, and so they will find themselves under judgment. But that's not talking about the end of the world. Matter of fact, we read in Matthew 21.45, and this is in response to those parables, when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. He tells these parables, and the religious leaders of the time are like, oh, and he's talking about us. We're going to be the ones under judgment. We're the ones who are killing the son. We're the ones who will be destroyed. Friends, the Revelation is recording largely, I think, future to... you know, the original audience, and largely, not entirely, but largely passed to us, that which took place, which ended the old covenant and paved the way for the new covenant. That's what we're reading, for the most part, in the Revelation. When we get to chapters 20, 21, and 22, that'll change a little bit. So we should walk away from Revelation with the knowledge that history would be opened for the fulfilling of the Great Commission. That is the way we need to read the Revelation. That history has been opened. Things that happened in that first century where we move from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant and the great success of the fulfillment of the Great Commission that Jesus gives to his church. You might want to look about it, look at it this way. Anyway, it's helped me to understand. In the old covenant, the light of Christ shone through one nation, Israel. I, I, another thing I think we underestimate is how dark the world actually was. I mean, when John writes that the entire world lay under the sway of the wicked one, that's quite a statement. I don't think that statement is true today the way it was true then. The entire world lay under the sway of the wicked one. The historian Otto Scott made the statement that every religion, apart from the Christian faith, had some form of human sacrifice. I mean, the world was a very dark, dark, dark place, and there was one small stream of light where God was shining the light of Christ, and that was through the nation of Israel. But when Jesus would be born and when the new covenant would begin, and we'll see this, I guess, if they have a light show coming up, you know, fireworks display on 4th of July, that little stream explodes and it lights up the entire sky. And that is the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant in terms of its universal application. It lights up the whole sky. Remember, the theme of the revelation is the victory of Christ over all opposition, over all Evil, maybe we could put it in our common metaphor we're using right now, overall all darkness. This, the dark sky would become light through the proclamation of Christ and Him crucified. Now, we discussed maybe longer than you wanted to what it meant, the coming on the clouds. Now, we're now going to move to every eye, and every eye... We'll see him, even those who pierced him, kind of, what does that mean? What's that language mean? Now, in an effort to avoid every conceivable explanation of every conceivable phrase, and by the way, there are books that will do that for you on the Revelation. I want to try to be brief here. You see, if Revelation 1.7 is talking about the second coming, then it would probably mean every person everywhere whoever lived will see him i think that's where we have to go in the thessalonians passage i think acts 111 goes there that that you know those who are in dead who are dead in christ will rise first the rest of us i think that is kind of like the coming of christ in the second coming and that means everybody the sheep and the goats the wheat and the tares the righteous and the unrighteous they all will see him but i think there's good reason for us to recognize that that's probably not what is being said here. And I think here, and I hope this will help you as you read other portions of your Bible, we need to understand the way the Bible uses language. Now, I realize that what I'm about to tell you, people can take too far in terms of metaphor and symbolism and so forth. But we've already established that the revelation tells us what kind of language it's using, right? It's signifying these things. These, the, this, that verb means to use symbolic or figurative language. We see a lot of that. Now, I realize, especially there were eras in church history where people went so far with that that the Bible became something that didn't make any sense at all. You could turn it into a wax nose, right, and make it go in any direction you'd like. At the same time, To become very, what they call, wooden literalists, where you're going, hey, if every word means exactly what it literally means, makes the Bible almost unsensible. So let's understand the way the Bible uses language. Because in a lot of ways, it uses language the same way we use language. Very common, the way we use language. We have a thing called the World Series. Last time I checked, there aren't baseball teams from every nation in the world playing in the World Series. I can tell you I love Texans. But that doesn't mean I love every Texan. I may love America. That doesn't mean I love every American. But we have to kind of understand the nuances of language that we are so used to using but aren't necessarily to be understood in a very wooden sense. Let me give you a couple of examples that should make it pretty obvious. When Paul wrote to the church at Rome that their faith, and this was a compliment and encouragement, is proclaimed in all the world. In Romans 1.8, your faith is being proclaimed in all the world. It wasn't as if the Mayans had heard of the faith of the church at Rome. When Caesar Augustus decreed that all the world should be registered. All the world should be registered. That didn't include Greenland. When we read in Acts 2.5 that there were at Pentecost devout men from every nation under heaven. That's what it says. Every nation under heaven at Pentecost. We shouldn't expect that there would be people from imperial China at Pentecost. You understand. If you start reading the Bible that way, it makes no sense. In short, what we have to understand is that every eye, and we see this in other places in the Bible, means every eye under consideration. Every eye in context. Every eye in terms of the conversation that we're currently having. I mean I, I mean, I could go on and on and explain. This should be obvious, you know. But when I say, you know, I, hey, I want all of you to get in the car. We're going home. Even if the rest of you hear it, I'm only talking to my kids. I don't want everybody in the church getting in my car. The point here is that what John is recording is a massive event And all the Jews and all the Romans will know that it's happening. They they would have understood the Roman Empire at that point to be the entire world. They will all see him, which I take to mean that they will all see the judgment that he's to bring. This is not going to be done in a closet. This is not going to be done in the shadows. This is going to be a very huge public event. Now, we have this language about those who pierced him. The piercing of Christ is foretold in Zechariah 12.10. And the actual piercing of Christ is recorded in the Gospel of John 19.34. So I might want to ask you, who are they who pierced him? Well, if you read John 19.34, you will learn it's not a they at all. Here's yet another way to make sure we read our Bibles correctly, right? He was pierced by one singular Roman soldier. And yet here we have they who pierced him rather than him who pierced him or one person who pierced him. Generally speaking, and I'll show you why in just a second, most understand this phrase in terms of who are they who pierced them as referring to Israel. Now, if you read that entire account in John, I just quoted John 19.34. Well, I, I just told you about it, right? That's where Jesus is being pierced. But if you read verses 31 through 37, what you'll read there is that it's basically a collusion between the Jews and the Romans, They're the ones, the Jews and the Romans, are responsible for the piercing of Christ. Note this. The Jews and the Romans, as we get through the Revelation, will be the two oppressors and persecutors of the church that are dealt with in the Revelation. It's the Romans, the political persecution of the Romans, and the religious persecution of the Jews. This is what we're going to find when we look at the Revelation. These are the ones... Are putting the heavy hand upon the early church. Nonetheless, the mention of this piercing seems to put Israel in the crosshairs and add to that this next phrase, all the tribes of the earth. Let's talk about that a little bit. That might make us think, all the tribes of the earth, if you read that, it might make you think of every person in the world. Right? Or maybe every person who ever lived. But again, I think there are many reasons why we should question that. First is the actual language. The Bible makes a distinction between tribes and nations, those are two different words in the English and in the Greek. In just a few chapters in Revelation, we're going to see those two words used in the same verse. And so it helps us understand the distinction. We read that Jesus ransomed people, Revelation 5, 9b, from every tribe and language and people and nation. So we see there a distinction. Tribe and nation is not the same thing. All this to say... That that phrase, all the tribes of the earth, can just as easily be translated, all the tribes of the land. That's what the word means, land. Now that gives you a different feel, doesn't it? All the tribes of the land. Like I think most of us read that, all the nations of the earth. But if you've been reading your Bibles, and especially if you were reading the Old Testament, all the nations of the earth is quite different than all the tribes of the land. The use of the word tribes in the Bible is generally referring, I don't know, you can guess, the 12 tribes of Israel. I mean, we're going to see that very clearly in Revelation chapter 7. He's going to list all the tribes of Israel. It's going to, you know, there's some distinctions in there we'll get to when we get there. But the tribes, if I were to say, when the Bible talks about tribes, what are they talking about? Most People, even with a cursory understanding of the Bible, will say the tribes of Israel. And what about land? If I use the word land when we're talking about the Bible, what are we generally talking about? Are we talking about the whole world? No, we're generally talking about the promised land. And you can find numerous passages in the Bible that teach exactly that. Another reason to understand that this is primarily referring to Jerusalem is the illusion taken from Zechariah. So let's go to Zechariah a little bit, because Zechariah is a pretty big player in all of this. Zechariah, which was written about 500 years prior to Christ, records this idea of a piercing. And you can notice in this passage, which I'm going to read now, I'm going to read again in a minute, looking for something a little different, where this is coming from. We read, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, A spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one who mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one who weeps over a firstborn. You see, who this passage is telling us is the one who pierced him Jerusalem. I'm going to pour my spirit upon Jerusalem. So And then they consider the one whom they pierced. So we see the Old Testament reference giving us a clue as to who is actually involved in this piercing. Now, this kind of caused me this week to spend a little more time in Zechariah. And I have to tell you, the scriptures are remarkable. It is just remarkable. Now, again, these are words written probably about 500, 550 years before the Incarnation, before Jesus is even born. And, but we read of numerous events about the life of Christ. Numerous events that are only and can only be fulfilled by the life of Christ. Let me just give you a few examples. You may want to just read this on your own. But what we read of in Zechariah 11, 10 through 13 is the annulling of the Old Covenant. He's just going, look at it, where you're going with your theology, with your morality, I am annulling this covenant. And what we also see in the annulling or the ending of the Old Covenant in Zechariah 11 is that it is associated with 30 pieces of silver. Well, I mean, you don't have to be a Bible scholar to know what that's talking about. So we see two things happening there that are clearly fulfilled in the New Testament, and that is the betrayal of Judas with the 30 pieces of silver and the annulling of the Old Covenant given to a new people bearing the fruit thereof, which we read of in the New Testament, that there's going to be a change in the administration. The message is the same message. It's still a message of grace. It's still a message of salvation through the promised Messiah. But there'd be a new people who would bring it, and that is the new covenant church, the light in the sky, the firework having been exploded. In Zechariah 13, 7, see if this sounds familiar, we read the words, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. A specific reference to the abandonment of Christ by his followers that we read of in Matthew 14, 27. There's also in Zechariah, remember a minute ago I said three sermons are called the Olivet Discourse because they are sermons given on the Mount of Olives. Clear reference in Zechariah 14.4 to the Mount of Olives and how Jesus will place his feet, and this is another very misunderstood passage, Jesus will place his feet upon that mountain, and it will split in two. Some people are like going, well, in the end of time, Jesus is going to come down, put his feet on the Mount of Olives, and there's going to be a big splitting of the mountain. I don't think that's what Zechariah is talking about at all. I think what Zechariah is talking about is that Jesus, in a certain sense, comes not to bring peace but a sword and is the great divider of history. We talked about the Old Covenant becoming the New Covenant, B.C. becoming A.D., but we also see division, Jesus taught, right within households, right? Father against son, mother against daughter. He basically is kind of going, look, at when I come, the, the truth and error are going to find themselves at odds with each other at a level of clarity that has been abandoned. And there are going to be people within your own household who will betray you. That is what happened at the Mount of Olives. Jesus kind of said, look at Choose this day whom you will serve. the Mount of Olives, we have that great division taking place in history. But this should not be a surprise to those who've been reading their Bibles. Because this is what was prophesied at the very beginning in terms of the birth of Christ. We see this in the Christmas story, but I don't think we appreciate the magnitude of this When, you know, Jesus is being dedicated, and we read in Luke 2.34, And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. I mean, this, this is when he kind of looks at her and goes, This is going to break your heart. What's going to happen to him It's going to break your heart. But Israel's been floating along and it's becoming darker and darker and darker and darker. And Jesus shows up, and there would be a great division within the church. Those who would repent. I mean, think about the way John the Baptist shows up. He shows up preaching to Israel, and what does he call them? Pastors? No, you brood of vipers. Be warned. The axe is at the root of the tree. The winnowing fork is in his hand. I mean, you've got this language kind of going, you need to repent, was the message from John the Baptist. And so that's the era that we read of when we're talking about the revelation. Zechariah 12.2 literally speaks about the siege of Jerusalem. You might be going, well, Pastor Paul, I think you're putting too much on AD 70 and what's going on in the fall of Jerusalem and the siege of Jerusalem. It literally uses that language, the siege of Jerusalem, which we've established to be the topic of the Olivet Discourse. It goes on and on. Zechariah 14 8 talks about living waters flowing out of Jerusalem, which is clearly a reference to Christ. We read in John 4.10 and John 7.38, I mean, I've gone a little further than maybe I needed to, but I have to say these prophecies and their fulfillment are virtually inexplicable apart from the divine hand of the living God. We should marvel when we read this and see what happened during the life of Christ. No wonder verse 8 is a reference to the almighty God. All right, well, this brings us to our final point, and that is the mourning that takes place, and they will all mourn. Strangely enough, people disagree on what that is. What is that mourning? Is it the morning of lamentation, sorrow, grief, and repentance? Or is it the morning of fear and trepidation? Well, let me tell you, able theologians... Hold both views. But I think, again, if we look at Zechariah, it's going to yield one that I think holds more credence than the other, because Zechariah would favor, I would argue, the sorrow and repentance view. There seems to be, in Zechariah, a reference to Pentecost, and all the things revolving around Pentecost. And there we see, and I'm going to read the same verse again, but look for something different this time, the response in terms of the one they pierced. How do they feel about it? How do they feel about the one whom they pierced? So we'll read that again, Zechariah 12.10, and I will pour out on the house of David and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace. And I think at some level that we can look at that and go, well, it seems to at least at some level be a reference to Pentecost and the pouring out of the Spirit in the New Covenant and pleas for mercy. So God will instill in their hearts this desire to find mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, how will they respond? They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Now, there is a way to read that, you know, to come to the, no, this is fear and trepidation conclusion. You think of the tears of Esau or something along those lines. But I think the use of the weeping over a firstborn, I think that's heartfelt sorrow. And I think a fulfillment of this is found in Peter's sermon at Pentecost. It culminates, his his sermon culminates with these words in Acts 2, 36 through 38. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified. Now you you see how the accusatory language there This Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. You see their response. And said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. I think we see there a New Testament, New Covenant example of this mourning anticipated by Zechariah. They were cut to the heart. This Jesus whom you crucified. And you think, you know, and by the way, there were, mark, there were mockers there as well, right? Not everybody was on board. You know, so, so maybe, you know, I have not got this entirely worked out, maybe the morning could be both. Maybe there's a morning of fear and trepidation and a morning of sorrow and repentance because some people didn't repent, but others did, and they were cut to the heart. And I think it's worth noting that that word mourn that we read of in Revelation 1-7 literally means to cut. That word, if you look it up in your lexicons, you'll see that that word mourn in a very literal sense means to cut. Now, just so you know, it's not the exact same word that's used in Acts when they were cut to the heart, but they are very much synonyms. Mourning and being cut are synonymous. But I I realize I'm making arguments here. And as I've said before, you're really going to have to work hard. You're going to have to work hard at following what I'm talking about. At the same time, Let's not lose the grace of God in our study. The determined, think about this, but put yourself there. The determined enemies of Christ, those who pierced them, the actual ones who were, who were part of that entire nefarious plot, would find forgiveness through the very blood That they were complicit in shedding. I I think most of us kind of stand way back from that. Most of us put ourselves more in the faithful hero position. But let me tell you something. You know, strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. I think it's very important to us to recognize that we need to put our faith not in a committee. Presbyterians, we love committees the committee of the apostles, they fled. And it was Christ alone who went to the cross. And we have to recognize that, that we, like them, would have run away into the darkness as much as they would have. None none of us would have been, we we might have talked like Peter, right? Oh no, I'm going to stay with you and fight to the very end. It was almost like, Peter was so brave that he would stand against like a legion of Roman soldiers and take a sword out and cut the guy's ear off. It seems like that took some courage. But when, when the cross was to be approached, he wanted nothing to do with that. The foreboding darkness of the wrath of God was something that the most able of us would never even approach. And we, like them, even though we scatter and run away, we just need to understand this, that we don't come back and find him, he finds us. It is is God, through Christ, through his spirit, through his word, who finds us. Truly, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Remember this, Revelation was designed to be both an encouragement and a warning to the church. Let's not lose that. For those who were faithful, for those with a godly mourning, this judgment upon the current religious and political establishments would be good news. That would be good news in the same way today in China, those who are persecuting the church in China, if God providentially removed them, that would be good news for them. Be bad news for others. This church would be preserved. That's the good news. That his kingdom, the kingdom represented by the church, as we read in Daniel, will be the one that would not be destroyed. That's going to be the one that makes it through the course of history. The historical events, the historical judgments found in the coming of Christ with the clouds would be good news for some, but it would be bad news for others. But, but let us not lose the deeper message here, because there will be, I've been talking a lot about historical judgments, and I hope you understand what I mean by that. Historical judgment is what God does when he raises up one nation to do something to another nation or one individual to do something to another individual and so forth that we read in Scripture. But there's an eternal judgment that God will directly do through his Son. And that judgment makes all these other judgments look like nothing. I, I was saying earlier, you know, that any coming of Christ should tell us something about the second coming of Christ. But it'll never reach the depth of what what it'll be like to have the piercing eyes of God look upon you in all of your darkness and sin. When you have nothing to say, you have no excuse, when your mouth is completely stopped and your mouth is shut. And all the justifications that we've kind of tried to rally up To make ourselves feel a little bit better about the darkness of our own sin goes away and we are clearly guilty before the living God. I think of, you know, a minute ago I talked about Peter, you know, and how he denied Christ three times. And there's a passage in one of the gospel accounts where we see maybe just a little flavor of that where we're told that Jesus turned and looked at Peter. I'm guessing that was the darkest moment in Peter's life when Jesus turned after he had denied him and just looked at him. That pales in comparison to judgment day. So everything we're learning in Revelation should give us a deeper and richer understanding of that eternal judgment. And Jesus, especially as he writes the seven letters, the the, the seven letters to seven churches, he'll herald that, he'll highlight that. We read in Revelation 2.11, jumping forward a little bit, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. The first death? By the hands of the Romans, by the hands of the Jews, by the hands of the persecutors, that first death? That's small potatoes. It's the second death. That Jesus is saying, if you endure till the end, if you suffer to the point of death, you will not be hurt by the second death. Churches, I mean, it's my prayer for our church, it's my prayer for all churches, it's my prayer for all Christians that we might ever proclaim the victory over the second death when we take in a moment and eat and drink in remembrance of Christ, it's the second death that we have victory over. We're all going to still have to deal with the first death. But the victory is over the second death. The eternal judgment of God. May we ever herald that victory, which comes through faith in Christ and in Christ alone. Revelation 2.7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that we would never put too much or too little impact in terms of our own hearts and minds and efforts of what you're doing in history, what you've called us to do and be in the advancement of your kingdom. But Father, we do pray that ever, ever our treasure would be that which is found in the blood of Christ, his broken body, his shed blood his conquest over our greatest enemy, sin and death. And it seems, Father, if that is clearly and squarely before us. The encounters of this world truly grow strangely dim. So help us, Father, to fix our hearts and minds upon this. In Jesus' name, amen.